the UN Climate Change Conference in 2015 took place in Paris. At this conference, the Paris Agreement was negotiated. The global community agreed on keeping a rise of global temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. It was also agreed to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. It is because of this agreement in Paris that the IPCC was invited to produce a report on this one and a half degree target and the linked pathways of greenhouse gas emission. The so-called special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius was released in October last year. In this podcast episode, I will explore the report and its recommendations and look back at what happened since it was released. My name is Caroline Koch and I work for the Royal Meteorological Society as a climate science communications specialist. Together with the Cranfilm Institute, we held a national meeting in London in November last year, just after the report got released. And we discussed this report in detail during the meeting. I had the chance to speak to some of the presenters at the time. One of them is Dr. Jori Rogel, who is lecturer at the Cranfilm Institute. In his talk, he introduced us to the concept of the carbon budget. Essentially, the carbon budget is based on the amount of carbon that was already emitted through human activities in the past. And by looking at this and taking into account how the warming is linked to greenhouse gas emissions, it tells us how much carbon we can still spend until we reach a warming of, for example, one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. I asked him what his research focuses on. My research actually really looks at um, how we can limit climate change, what are the physical limits within which we have to stay in order to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. It's what we are discussing here at the meeting. So the 1.5 degree goal on a global scale, how can we reach it or what transition needs to happen? So the first important thing to limit warming to any level is that we need to bring down global carbon dioxide emissions to zero. That actually basically means that we have a budget of carbon dioxide that we are still allowed to spend. For limiting warming to 1.5, this budget is really small. This budget is equivalent to 10 or 15 years of current emissions. Or if you look at it from another side, it means that we have to go down to, to zero global emissions in 20 to 30 years. So that is a real huge challenge. At the same time, we know how this could be done with, with certain technologies and with certain policies. We know that uh, the options are available, um, but of course they require political will and decisions and policies that drive down these transitions. So what would that transition, for example, or that technology that is there, what would that be, like renewable energy? Indeed, for 1.5, because we need to get to net zero and because it is required that we do this so quickly, it, is, it are really transitions in all sectors and all systems. That means in the way we produce energy, in the way we use our land, in the way we build our cities or we build our houses, and also in the way that we produce our products, for example, in the industry. And uh, in each of these sectors, there are different measures that can be taken. For example, in the energy sector, we can switch from, from fossil fuels to renewables or other low carbon sources. In the land use sector, we can make sure that certain land use practices are used that emit less emissions and so on. So that's a lot of major transformation, transformations that need to take place. Um, can you comment on where are we now? Are we on track with that? Yeah, so currently what we understand from the literature is that to limit warming to 1.5 emissions really need to go down very quickly and already in the next decade. 
If you compare this to where the current pledges of the countries in, in the international climate negotiations are, they still see an increase, a slight increase of emissions until 2030. So that means we're really not on track. At the same time, this new report of the IPCC has been invited or has been requested by the international climate negotiations and will now be fed into back into that process so that governments can take into account this scientific evidence and to adjust their actions appropriately. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Climate change will mainly affect those who have done the least to contribute to the problem. For the world to be able to reach this shared one and a half degree goal, it needs tremendous financial commitments. But who's going to pay for it? Dr. Alex Dietzel discussed this question during her talk. She's a lecturer in global ethics at the University of Bristol. I was very fortunate to catch up with her after her talk. I asked Alex to introduce herself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about her background. Yes, so hi, I'm Alex, and my background is that I did a degree in international relations, so I learned all about international politics, and then I did a master's degree in research methods um, to kind of get into my PhD, and I learned how to, you know, measure things, and then I decided to become a political philosopher, where you don't really make measurements, and you often don't think about the realities of international politics. But because of my background, I thought, I don't just want to think about justice or ethics, and then leave it at that, in terms of climate change, I also wanted to to try and apply my research and really analyze international policy around climate change. So even though I would describe myself as a political theorist, I'm more of an applied theorist because I really investigate what's going on at the global level in terms of climate change and try to measure how just the response is that we're taking. Okay, so what do we mean by climate justice? <laughs> so climate justice is the idea that the problem of climate change is fundamentally a problem of justice. And you can think about that very simply by understanding that climate change will predominantly affect those who have done least to contribute to the problem. So there's three groups of people who have done least to contribute to the problem. One is those living in less developed countries. Um, they're predicted to bear 85% of the burden of climate change. The second group is future generations who are obviously not yet alive, so have not done anything to contribute to climate change. And then the third is um, poor people living even within richer regions and richer nations who often have very low adaptive capacity and will suffer most from climate change, but also have very low emissions because they don't tend to travel very much um, and they don't tend to contribute to the climate change problem. You mentioned in your talk that uh, if we are capable of doing something, <laughs> we are responsible. <laughs> Maybe you want to comment on that and how this relates to climate change. Sure. Justice. So the idea that capability equals moral responsibility comes from an old philosophical idea um, which emerged in the 70s. It was Peter Singer's model of responsibility. So he talked about a thought experiment where someone was walking to work and saw a child drowning in a pond. Um, and the person was thinking, well, if I rescue this child, then I will get my clothes muddy and I might be late to work. And Peter Singer said, the person is capable of saving the drowning child without risking something of equal moral importance to themselves. Becoming muddy or being late to work is not as morally important as the death of a child. And you can extrapolate that kind of kind of logic and thinking to the climate change problem, because saving future generations in those in less developed countries from climate change effects is difficult, but it's not as morally difficult as it is to um, kind of watch those people suffer and, and die essentially from climate change. And do you see this, um, this discussion brought in in the report or in the discussions around the report? So I think the IPCC 
has tried to bring in the social aspect much more um, than usual in this newest report. So they specifically talk about sustainable development goals, they talk a little bit about adaptation, and they try to kind of make policymakers see that it's not just about abstractly reducing emissions, it's about um, preventing poverty increases, preventing people from having heat stroke, making sure people have water to drink. So although they don't frame it with an justice dialogue, um, they are talking about helping people and, and the human impact. So I was quite heartened to see that uh, in the report. Yep, great, thank you so much. You're welcome. Of course, whether or not we will be able to reach the global temperature goal will depend on political action. Jolene Cook has some important insights to share on how the report was developed and how it will be used by policymakers in the future. So I'm sitting down with Jolene Cook. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently Head of International Climate Science in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And I lead or jointly lead a team of science advisors whose role is really to provide science advice to policy teams within Bayes and across government. Great. So you gave a talk about the UNFCCC. What does this stand for? <laughs> yeah, sure. That's the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change. So it's really the body where international discussions, international negotiations on um, climate policy take place. So where you have, I think, 195, 196 countries coming together to agree on global action to meet its ultimate objective of trying to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. And how does this relate to IPCC? IPCC is also also another UN body, um, but kind of covered by both World Meteorological Organization and UN Environment. And the IPCC is really where the UNFCCC is the political body. IPCC is really a scientific body, uh, so very very separate. Um, in fact, the IPCC is older the UNFCCC, and um, its first assessment report actually led to the creation of UNFCCC. So very separate, but, but quite um, very linked in that IPCC basically provides all the scientific evidence and the rationale for climate action. So all its reports are um, looked at by the UNFCCC, considered, discussed, debated, um, and are hopefully leading to some kind of action. So the latest, the 1.5 degree report, you mentioned it was after the UNFCCC decided yeah, so, so what happened was, um, you know, the Paris Agreement, they set their new temperature goal, so which is holding temperature well below 2 degrees and then pursuing efforts towards limiting it to 1.5 degrees. And at the same time, the, the parties decided that um, actually they didn't have quite enough information what the impacts of 1.5 degree were and what the associated greenhouse gas emissions pathways would be to 1.5 degrees. So they asked the IPCC or invited the IPCC in official UNFCCC language to create this, to deliver this report in 2018 ahead of this particular COP, so COP24. And then the IPCC a few months later accepted that invitation and then started the process for delivering it and that's what we just saw delivered last month in October. And how does this feed into action? So once such a report is created, it's communicated back? Yeah, so, so this is going to be very interesting. So for the 1.5 degree report, um, it's a really special, special report because it was a policy policy. So it all automatically has a use. You know, its uh, audience, its users already know how they want to, you know, what information they want and how it's going to feed into their discussions. So uh, within UNFCCC, what we're going to see, I think, a few, three, three different things. The first one is that we expect to see parties really taking the findings of that report and really communicating them, including in every speech, every intervention, 
just trying to get the messages out as much as possible that you know it's, we really need to increase action and it's really quite urgent. Um, and then the second thing, the way in which UNFCCC will use it is in this thing called the Talanoa Dialogue, which is a um, year-long dialogue between parties to kind of share information, share experiences, share stories around climate action, focus on three questions. So those three questions are where are we now, where do we want to go and how do we get there? And the IPCC special report really was delivered to inform specifically that discussion so it's going to be the primary scientific input to that information, that dialogue. And what we hope is that at the end of that dialogue, which will finish in COP24, there will be some kind of statement agreed among among parties, among the ministers, that says something that, that acknowledges the findings of the report, acknowledges that we need to do more, um, and hopefully that will then be taken back home by um, countries and used to prepare their next nationally determined contributions which are due in 2020. That's interesting. That's a long, long process and obviously the report has just been published, but do you have a feeling for whether this changes anything or of the political action we can expect? I think so. I think, um, I mean, the first thing to note is that uh, I was talking about earlier about the, the response uh, in the media and response by businesses, response by um, a few different countries, um, or just general response by the public to the report. It's been quite incredible. You know, for the first time, we really saw quite an incredible response in newspapers. You know, how they were all really getting behind, like, oh my goodness, this, this report is a big deal. It's got some really key messages. It shows you we need to do things now. No one questioned the science which is a really very positive thing. Though, in terms of the conversation around climate change, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a game changer. It's really changed the, the way people are thinking about climate change and, and also thinking about this 1.5 degree issue as well and what it means, particularly in terms of a net zero target. And then politically, it's a bit early days to say, but uh, I think already, as a, um, you'll see that the UK's already produced a response to the report in that it's requested or asked the Committee on Climate Change to provide advice on what the UK's long-term targets should be in light of this report and its findings and the Paris Agreement. And equally, the, the, the European Union and the Environment Council also have responded to this report by asking for the asking the European Commission to include a 1.5 degree scenario in the um, long-term strategy for reducing EU's uh, greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Also, one path that includes a net zero target for the EU by 2050. So all those things will be explored. Um, and it's really, I think, that, that the IPCC report has been instrumental in really highlighting that we, these are things that we really need to do if we're serious about tackling climate change. Great, thank you so much. You're welcome, thank you. It is now half a year ago that the special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius was released. And just last week we hosted another national meeting, but this time not looking at current climate change, but looking into the past. The Pliocene is a geologic time about four million years ago, where the Earth had carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere similar to the ones today. I spoke to the meeting chair of this event, Professor Martin Siegert, co-director of the Cranfilm Institute. We spoke about the importance of understanding climate change in the past, but also about current policies and what has happened in the past six months since the 1.5 degree report got released. My name is Martin Seeger. I'm the co-director of the Glantham Institute of Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College London and I'm also an Antarctic glaciologist. 
Great, and we're here today because we have a meeting going on that looks at the last time where we had more than 400 ppm of CO2 in the atmosphere and trying to investigate what this might tell us for our future. So could you give us some background on this? Why, why are we looking at the past to understand the future? So you're quite right. We have had 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere. 150 years ago, the level of carbon dioxide was 280 parts per million. As far as we can tell, in the last two million years, the carbon dioxide levels have oscillated between 280 parts per million and 180 parts per million. When it's high, that we, we are between ice ages, and when it's low, we're in an ice age. And what we have at the moment is we are way outside that, that natural envelope of 280 to 180 parts per million. Since 1850 and the Industrial Revolution, we've put in over 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide, so the level now is over 410 parts per million. And what's that doing to the planet? Well, we've already observed that temperatures are one degree warmer globally, on average, than they were in 1850, and you have to times that by two for the polar regions. They're warming up at least as twice as fast as the rest of the planet in the, in the polar regions for, for various reasons. So we're looking at where things are going, and of course, temperature rise is not going to suddenly stop today. It's likely to keep going. And so what we have to understand is what does the world look like, what should the world look like, when it has 400 parts per million concentration of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere. And we can model that, that's fine. But another way to approach the problem is to look into the past. At the last time, the Earth had 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide and, and examine what the world looked like in that situation. And what we're going to do today, Will Metzok, is to understand um, just that question. What did the world look like on the, the last time it had 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide? And then see what lessons we can learn today from, from that time. So how many years ago was that? So we have to go back um, somewhere between 5.2 to 2.6 million years ago. And it's a period in Earth's history called the Pliocene. And uh, CO2 levels were, were commonly above 400 parts per million. And atmospheric temperatures were much higher than they, than they are today, pretty much throughout that, that period. And so the world was quite a different place at, at that time. But I guess the difference is that now we got to this 400 parts per million quite fast, like within 150 years. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about uh, how geology works in, in this context. So uh, we can reconstruct carbon dioxide concentrations in various means using isotopes and, and geochemistry um, from the um, geological record. Uh, it turns out that about 100 million years ago in the Cretaceous, the level of carbon dioxide was about 1,000 parts per million, and temperatures were about eight degrees warmer than they are today, right? pretty hot. And then over the last sort of 60 or so million years, things have just got cooler and cooler on average, um, with some variation, but generally cooler. And the level of carbon dioxide has been, uh, been coming out of the atmosphere with some variation, but on average. And the reason that the, the carbon dioxide has come out of the atmosphere is because it's simply been buried. It's been buried as coal, it's been buried as oil and buried as gas. We've taken it out there naturally, been taken out of the atmosphere, it's been stored underground, it's all fine. Um, by the time we get to the Pliocene, 5.2 to 2.6 million years ago, the, the level of carbon dioxide had come down to 400 parts per million. And then, in the last two or so million years, um, it's oscillated between 280 and 180 parts per million until 1850. And in 1850, we started digging up coal and then oil and gas and putting it back into the atmosphere, such that we now have over 410 
parts per million of carbon dioxide, and that increase has just been in 150 years. In geological time, that it really is a blink of an eyelid. That's, that's like instant. And about now, we are at a warming of one degree? Um? So temperatures have gone up by a degree, and CO2 concentrations have gone up in parallel with it. So there is a sort of one-to-one -one association between the level of carbon dioxide and, um, and the temperature. And we see that in the, in the ice core record, and we see that back in time as well. So that's, that's not surprising. It works very nicely with our understanding of the physics of the matter as well. So it's a very tight argument. The problem is that there's an acceleration. There's more and more carbon dioxide going in, and the temperature change seems to be going up as do sea level as well, because you can't sort of discount the level of the oceans because it's all linked together. And last year in the fall, there was this IPCC report uh, released to how to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. So it seems we're not very far from reaching that 1.5 degrees. Yes, we're on another half a degree centigrade uh, to play with. And, uh, and so how can we limit the global warming to only another half degree? Well, it's a really bad news story, really, because it tells us, the first thing it tells us is we're locked into that change. There's nothing we can do really about that. You know, another half a degree we're going to have to cope with, and that, that's what's coming. So when we talk about climate change action, a lot of it is mitigation, stopping emissions, but actually a lot of it is adaptation because we're locked into changes that we really can't do anything about. There's a lag, you know, you put some carbon dioxide into the atmosphere now, it's some time before the full effects of that take place. And once it's in the atmosphere, the reason carbon dioxide is such an interesting greenhouse gas in inverted commas is that it hangs in the atmosphere for a long time. Other greenhouse gases like, like methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas, drops out of the atmosphere quite quickly, but not carbon dioxide. And so when you put it into the atmosphere, and it hangs around for decades, for centuries, in fact, the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now is going to be problem stored for, for many decades ahead of us, which makes it intergenerational. So how do we restrict warming to only another half a degree? Well, the IPCC recommendations are quite straightforward. We have to heavily reduce our um, uh, emissions right now to about 40% of what they are roughly today by 2030, it's like 12 years time, 11 years time, and then they've got to come down to zero by 2050. And then after that, they're going to be negative. We're going to be taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And actually, in all the different scenarios, what we really, really need are, are ways in which we can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We know we can do it. Um, and plants do that very naturally, of course. Um, when you look at the way that the levels of carbon dioxide, um, uh, measurements of carbon dioxide work, is there is an interannual variation. In the summertime in the Northern Hemisphere, there's so much growth of, of plants and things that carbon dioxide, you know, a couple of, of points of carbon dioxide get taken out of the atmosphere. But then in wintertime, you know, we're emitting stuff and, and the difference between what plants are absorbing and what we're emitting um, we're always emitting more than the plants can absorb, and so the levels keep going up. But there is an oscillation, and what it tells us is that the carbon dioxide level can be drawn down. Mm. And so what we need to do uh, is find technologies that allow us to do it. Now, I'm never advocating geoengineering, right, because I don't like the sound of that, and I don't think we're at that stage now. But what I would advocate are mechanisms by which we can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yeah, and ever since the report got released half a year ago, do you have the feeling that something has changed in the conversation, or how did countries Yeah, react? it's a very interesting report, because it wasn't particularly different to what happened before it. So, so the Paris climate deal, for example, talked about well below 2 degrees centigrade, um, but didn't really have the, the scientific information to, to, to target 1.5 degrees, um, although it used it in conversation. Well, the 1.5 degree report was 
um, using scientific evidence, it said, well, this is how you can achieve it. Right? And so we, now we know it's plausible that, that it can be done. Whether it happens or not, whether we take effective action to make it happen is another question. But no one can say that we weren't informed about how we can do it. And actually, there were options available in that report as well. It's not just one way to do it. There's lots of different things. Uh, and so you know, we have full information. We, we know it's possible uh, to do. So we can't possibly say that we didn't have that, that information. Uh, uh, we do it. The big thing that's, that's changed um, as a consequence of the 1.5 report is attitudes to it. It was um, astonishing, actually, in, in, in autumn last year when it came out, the, the resonance of, um, uh, that we found in the public, that, that um, understanding response to climate change in terms of the next decade, so that is reducing carbon dioxide levels to 40% of what they are now by 2030, is very meaningful. People can understand that. And it's just 10 years. 10 years is really not that long. And we'll be able to track it. We'll be able to start tracking it from next year and see if we're on that pathway or not. And, and people will become much better connected to action on climate change than I think they have been previously, when it all looks a bit pushed into the future. You know, action on climate change is, is important, and it can happen. But some people think it's for tomorrow. It's for someone else to deal with. 1.5 report made it real for everybody. And, and we'll be able to measure it and track it in the next few years to see whether we're, we're taking appropriate action or not. And I think that will make a huge difference to the, to the debate and, and raise awareness. That's great. So we'll keep our eyes on it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. you can find the presentation slides and audio recordings of our past meetings on our website, armits.org events. Thank you so much for listening and have a lovely day.